you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Morning, afternoon, or evening from wherever and whenever you are listening, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast, where if you're new, we talk to incredible women in innovation weekly about their career trajectories, unique points of view on innovation, and the role of gender in all of the above. Today's very special guest is Barca Saxena, who is Chief Data Officer at Poshmark, a buying and selling platform for clothes, home decor, accessories, you name it. Poshmark is also a publicly traded company with millions of users and endless amounts of transactions from both the buyer and the seller side. Poshmark has been around for 10 years, way before the Instagram shopping and e-commerce companies such as Shopify made it very easy to buy items from, well, you know, your couch. But what's also really incredible about the company is that it is really in line with creating important progress towards offering more and more people, and women specifically, the opportunity to financial freedom and empowerment. By selling and buying items, you are also contributing to a circular economy, which is much better for the environment, and also giving access to luxury goods to those that may not have otherwise had it, which is an added perk. As you can imagine, as Chief Data Officer at Poshmark, Barca is looking at so much big data, whether that's buyer behavior, trend analysis, supply chain insights, the list goes on and on. It's really interesting for me as the host to be able to look at the different perspectives on data because the conversations about social consumer technologies are so prevalent in our day-to-day And also, if you heard Shireen Kazim, who is Chief Experience Officer at Wonderman Thompson North America's episode a few months back, she talked about how not keeping those things front of mind is no longer an excuse as professionals in innovation and tech and data. Barca's take is similar and different in many ways, as one of the many things I loved about our conversation is that she has really strong awareness of the power that comes with her job, but consistently ties it back to Parshmark's value system as well as her own. It's a really beautiful example of the modern day empathetic leader, and I think you'll hear that throughout our conversation. Some additional background on Barca is that she served as Vice President of Data Solution and Analytics Product Management at Nomis Solutions and led the data team at Comscore as Vice President of Consumer Analytics. Earlier in her career, she was Director of Analytics and Corporate Strategy at FICO. Her educational background is a BS from the Indian Institute of Technology in Kanpur, a Master's from UC Santa Barbara, and an MBA from Wharton UPenn. Without further ado, here's my episode with Barca, all about data innovation at Poshmark. Hi, Barca. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Thank you, Zoya, for inviting me here. I'm so excited to be joining you on this discussion. Yes, a really, really exciting time for the podcast, but also for Poshmark, of course. Just earlier this year, Poshmark went public in January with over 30 million active users at that time, and I'm sure it's growing. You joined the company over seven years ago when it was just 35 people. After an impressive background at a larger companies such as FICO, Comscore, as well as Nomis Solutions. So how did you find out about Poshmark and, and what led you to join 
this at the time startup? So I had to just a quick notice and I was thinking of just taking a little break to figure out what is it I want to do next. And uh, I, I heard about Koshmark and this uh, neat concept they had about these virtual parties, which if you think about in 2014 was a very, very unique concept. And that intrigued me. And I reached out to Manish, who's the, the founder and the CEO of Poshmark. We met and we talked and uh, he talked about the vision of the company. And I was just super excited about his vision and the opportunity I'm going to have to build the whole data function from the ground up. And uh, then I met with the rest of the co-founders and, and the, the leadership team at that time. And they were just, they're just so wonderful people. And that is one of the big reasons I'm still there after seven years, that just that attraction of uh, working with an amazing team and working on a really innovative idea and the opportunity to build it from the ground up brought me to Poshmark. Yeah, I feel like it's always about the people, right? But I, I think at the time, like I said, you, you came from larger companies. And so was there a learning curve or a challenge going down to a company where at the time didn't have many resources? Yes, uh, but in a good way. So so if you think of it, I was coming from an organization where I always had a large team. And to be honest, like I had not written the code for quite some time before I joined Poshmark. When I started at Poshmark, it's like I'm the first data person starting there. And there wasn't much of the data as compared to my previous companies where I walked in, data was all there, and my job was to build amazing products on data. Uh, but, you know, that's what uh, that's what had brought me there. And I was excited about that opportunity. And uh, my first couple of years were uh, really focused on just building the data infrastructure. I went back to being the hands-on person, writing a lot of code and and getting it all done. The amazing thing was uh, the Poshmark vision was so clear, even at that early stage, that I could create my own vision of what will be the role of data in helping Poshmark achieve that vision and what will it look like in, in that year, three years, five years, and 10 years. So I created that powerful vision and from there mapped it back to the, the building blocks which are needed to get you to where you needed to go. And then figured out an execution plan that given the limited resources you have at the Series B startup company, when I'm starting, how will I work with this three core pillars of the data technology and people to build these like the building blocks to get to where we need to be? So, yes, it was challenging because a lot of hands-on work and uh, you have very limited resources. But I think my experience of having been in the, the larger company really played a big role in being able to understand where we needed to be and then map it to a very pragmatic approach of how we are going to get there. I mean, just from the last three or four minutes, I've, I've learned so much about data and it's so clear that it's such a true passion of yours. You're in the Bay Area in San Francisco and you actually studied statistics and data through your undergrad, your MA, and then also attended Wharton for business school. So was data and technology always the dream? Were you always this passionate about it? Yes. So data, uh, or I would say if I go to the, my childhood, uh, the math was my passion, right? The, the data and like all that come, came later. Numbers just always spoke to me in one way or the other. It, it just, I find numbers very simple because there is no fuzziness. They are just clear, right? When you add up two plus two, it is four. 
Um, so numbers was always my fashion, passion. And when I graduated from, from IIT in India with the statistics degree, I actually took a job for, as a software engineer for a year. And then I realized that, oh, I don't enjoy it. And if you think of it, uh, that software engineering job in that 99, 2000, that was the, the dot-com era. And I chose to actually quit that job, which a lot of people will think was a crazy idea because that was the profession everybody wanted at that time. And I was like, no, I really want to be in data. And I moved to United States and then uh, went to school, just got another degree in the statistics. And then I took a job at FICO, which was uh, the one of the very few companies who were doing a very cutting edge, uh, innovative work. Uh, and we call that predictive analytics at that time. But essentially what I did my, uh, my, my 10 years was first five years were really heavy in the machine learning algorithms development. So data was my passion. And, and I, I made the career choices, which someone might have called a little crazy, like leaving a software <laughs> job, but, but I am, I'm super happy. And, and it just turned out that data became the most amazing, uh, I would say, profession these days. Like everyone wants to be a data scientist. Absolutely. And, you know, but it, it's true. There were such different stigmas around women in technology. I mean, just data and even software engineering, women in data, especially in the 90s and in the early 2000s when your career was really beginning and flourishing. So how did you navigate that? And would you say that there was added complexity and challenge to your career trajectory because of your gender and being a woman of color? So, I would say yes, but not something which was new to me. Because if you think of uh, a lot of those, uh, the gender perception that starts uh, at a at a very very early age. Like I was one of the few girls who wanted to study math when I right. was. From there, when I went to uh, college, it was like uh, we were twelve girls in a class of like three hundred fifty students. And then wow. when you to take your first job, you are generally the only women in the room full of colleagues, right? Whether you are presenting to a client or you're discussing a problem. So I, I would say that I was just really used to it. And, you know, today, I mean, I work in a company, uh, which is just amazing, amazing company in terms of just empowering women. And so Poshmark is a wonderful place. But before Poshmark, my experiences were not any different than any other women, where there is an unintentional stereotyping, there are unequal pay, which you only figure out later. And even like negative biases, right, towards as a working, I, I'm a mom of three. So, so a lot mm -hmm. of times you have these uh, interesting biases. But, you know, this is how the world was. But in those biases, there were also a lot of good people, too. And there were plenty of exceptions where uh, I worked uh, with men te in teams led by men and women and who believed in women leadership. And, and I'm honestly thankful, th thankful to all of them for my, my career journey. The, the perspective I've taken is that, yes, we have been through those experiences. Uh, today, I'm fortunate to be in a company where we have just cultivated this culture, which really empowers women. Industry as a whole is still, uh, I think, it's getting there, but still is a long road ahead for really uh, empowering women in the, in the tech field. You mentioned, you know, with, with data, one of the reasons and math why you liked it is that you said there's no fluff. I think from a tech and data and technology perspective, there are a lot of conversations about when the algorithms are, are made by men, they often ignore women and uh, people of color. How do you approach this and, and what do you believe the opportunity space to be to use data to really help underserved groups? Great, great question. 
And uh, I would say getting even just that diverse group of people to work on these algorithms itself is a great start because the the data is not fuzzy, but when people convert those into algorithms and how you create the features and how do you interpret those features, which are driving different data products and data algorithm, that's where a lot of biases can show up. And when you have a diverse group of data scientists and, and diversity from the gender and the culture and the race, all perspectives, that's how you make sure that you are looking at the problem more holistically and you are thinking the solution construct very holistically. And, and I think that's why, you know, the, there is a lot of research and the data-backed evidence that the companies which have a diverse workforce, they actually do better, both from the financial perspective as well as the, uh, the respect they have in the industry. And it is because you come up with a better framework of solving problem, even with data. Something I find really, really interesting about the conversations I've heard around Poshmark specifically, and even in our conversation today, is the use of the word empower. And I really realized how empowering Poshmark can be personally when I realized that I could sell my clothes and actually, you know, have additional sources of revenue. So I guess my question for you is, what do you see the role of empowerment to be within a company and a product like Poshmark? So when the Poshmark was started, right, the, the whole focus was around, it, it started with the fundamental belief in this women empowerment, because all of our uh, users in the beginning were, uh, I mean, we have a men portfolio now, but it was majority women. Mm-hmm. The approach we took was, how can we use the data and technology to bring that empowerment? And if you think of it, what Poshmark has done, it has used data and technology to democratize fashion. Mm-hmm. So someone who wants to build a brand, just think of how much effort they needed to put if there wasn't a platform like Poshmark where they could launch a brand with with the minimal resources and they have access to all of these buyers out there who are interested in buying their stuff and they can expose it to such a large number of buyers. And at Poshmark, we have seen the sellers starting it as like just selling things from their closet and over time, building building their own brands. And Poshmark just gives all these tools. And we have used the data and technology to uh, help sellers be successful in the platform. And the other, other side, there is the buyer empowerment. Because if you think from the buyer perspective, the fashion uh, wasn't the, in the reach of every single person, right? The way it was, at least the historically. And, and now buyers have access to all of these amazing new upcoming brands and they can find what really suits their interest. So there is an empowerment on the both sides. So one is the expression of the seller in terms of expression as well as the livelihood and the, the career they are trying to build. On the buyer side, there's an empowerment in helping people find what they really want. And then underlying that is an economic empowerment because these sellers are actually building their livelihood on that in in the platform. And last year, it became like even more clear that the role the platforms like Poshmark play in empowering. But I think in the underlying this empowerment, what is unique about the companies like Poshmark is how we use the data and technology to drive it. Because data and technology at the end is the way you scale the impact of any initiative you want to take. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, you've you've gone through so many different stages, right? We spoke about Poshmark as a as a 35 person company, but now the company has IPO'd. And so the stakes and the strategy of the company are, are obviously very different than when the company was at its various growth stages. So to your point about data driving that growth, what existing milestones are you excited about and what milestones are you hoping to achieve in this next stage as far as data and growth? So I am super excited about where Poshmark has come. I mean, especially like someone who has been there from that that early stage. Just to give you an idea of the scale, today we have 70 million plus registered users. Wow. We have 200 plus million products across 9,000 plus brands and across multiple categories. We are already operating in three geographies. Our users spend 27 minutes a day in the app. If you think of it, just the engagement they find on the platform. And uh, in 2019, we had 20 plus billion social interactions which happened on the platform. So we, we really feel good about that. We have delivered on the promise. And of course, that we, we are not done. But we had set out to democratize the fashion bring the social aspect to the commerce because we all know that the human beings are inherently social. And while e-commerce had brought all this uh, efficiency in purchasing and the access to a vast catalog, it had taken that human elements out of it. So by bringing the social commerce with the community at the heart of it and the, the way that our users are engaged in the platform, Poshmark has pioneered a new category of the social commerce that the people want to enjoy commerce and and interacting with each other while they're making their purchases and not just go and click, click, click things. Right. And there's such a strong element of community that I've heard both your CEO and co-founder talk about and, and, and you when you're talking about this aspect of shopping is inherently social. So I guess something that I'm really curious about is how do you define community? And, and from being at Poshmark all, all these years, what do you believe are the best practices to build a community? Great question. So for community for us is the buyers and the sellers who are in the platform and they are interacting with each other. So there's a seller community, buyer community. We have an amazing overlap. People buy and sell. And, and I would say the fundamental of building the community is uh, in, in a lot of ways, it goes back to the Poshmark's core values. And we have taken the, the same approach of building community outside as well as internally at Poshmark. So our four cultural values are Focus on people, lead with love, together we grow, and embrace all weirdness, which is really embrace all diversity. That's amazing. I love that. And it's so succinct and clear. Yep. And if you think of it, the reason our community our community is our secret sauce. It's we will not be here if it wasn't for this amazing community. And in building that community, the, the focus we have on everything we do, it starts with the perspective of how it's going to bring value to the community, whether it's about making our sellers more successful or it's about helping buyers find the, the right item or connect them with the right sellers in the platform. And just that sheer focus, when we talk about our product discussion in terms of what we are trying to build on the marketing strategy size, who are we trying to bring on board and what type of messaging we are trying to send to our sellers it's really focused on our community and we call them as our core customers because that's who we are serving. Mm -hmm. And by this focus on uh, together we go, 
we have invested in growing the community because you know when they are successful and they are growing our success will follow it and uh, embrace all uh, weirdness comes from we want everyone in the platform whether you are just starting your closet and you are trying to sell your first item you are as important for us as someone who has built a brand as a buyer by just focusing on under like using tremendous amount of data and technology and uh, the buyer's behavior and the interest and the signals they give us in terms of what they are looking for and using them to be able to match with the right item whether it's through our recommendation systems or the people recommendation we are really helping people find their own individual style so again the focus on the community is let's make sure that the, we are delivering to our buyers on that amazing discovery experience of helping them find their true fit and we are focusing on making our sellers successful and when they are successful poshmark success will come with it Yeah, it's so interesting because you really do have so many aspects of what it means to uh have a community and all your different audiences and and I think that's that's another very special aspect of the company. You mentioned a really interesting uh statistic of around uh users or customers spending over 27 minutes on your platform daily, which is just I mean incredible incredible engagement. But what are some other north star metrics that you're considering as you work on growth within the community and how do you avoid avoid the traps of vanity metrics and ensure that the data and what you're measuring is actually contributing to the innovation and the mission that you just discussed. Fantastic question and I would consider that to be my primary job to as a CEO of the company right. to make sure that we are focused on the right set of metrics. We have a very disciplined process on that. So we start at let's say we have a, at the Poshmark we have these goals like we need to make our seller successful that they are selling and then we need to focus on making sure buyers are finding what they need. And from there so the the number of users is the top level statistics and they are spending 27 minutes that's another statistics. But then are they being successful? on both sides is a key focus because if buyers are not able to find the the right item or they are not having that engaging experience over time that engagement will go down or if our sellers are not being successful then they won't be coming to the platform so we we start at the very top level and then for each of the business functions uh, we have mapped the top level of like the key metrics for example the marketing team has their their top level the key metrics which they are focusing on and they are driving those metrics the product team has their own metrics the customer service team has their own set of metrics mm-hmm. you know we are sitting on the big data so you can get lost in the data and can have a lot of lot of metrics but we use this discipline that the top level metrics really correlate with our north star metric of uh, the the economic value poshmark is creating and how people are engaged in the platform and those top level metrics are what we actually track and we have a very disciplined process at poshmark that uh, we meet with the execs team at a certain frequency where we we go over those top metrics and identify the growth opportunity and the stress points and then from there my team supports in like okay if there is a if there are questions then you can drill down further but you are not sitting in a meeting and trying to keep track of like 30 metrics because then it's just going to get diffused because something will go up and something will go down. Yeah, I mean, I'm a product manager in my in my day job and so honestly when I build out metrics dashboards something I always ask the other product owners that I work with is why do you need this metric and and what action can you actually take from it? But actually hearing you speak 
and I know I, you or mentioned earlier that there is no fluff when it comes to number, but it sounds like what you do is incredibly creative. So do you think that creativity is something that goes hand in hand with data and or innovation? Yes, absolutely. So uh, this is something when we, even when we hire, right, it's uh, going to how we build a team and the type of people I, I like to hire in the team. See, there are three aspects of a, of a really great data person. One is, of course, you just need to be technically super sound. Like you need to mm-hmm. understand the item, you need to be able to write the code. But that's like the, I call that, the, that's the minimum bar, like you need to have. On top of that, we need this really good, I like to call that the business acumen and the ability to be able to connect the, the super technical aspects of the data to what is needed to drive the business decisions. And that ability you only like uh, build over time in terms of understanding those connections and then focusing on the most important things, things which matter. And within that business acumen is as a data person, your ability to be to engage in a conversation with your with your business partner and hear the questions and then translate into what do I need from the data perspective to be able to answer that question, but only share three things and not say that, hey, here is my dashboard with 50 metrics. Now let's work together and figure out what do you need? Because then you then you suddenly lost that confidence from the business partner that you are going to be the one helping them drive faster and, and higher ROI because now they're going to be lost in the data. Right, because ultimately you are the expert at navigating the data and not not the other stakeholders that you work with. Another aspect is when you when you make these strategic choices, there are lots of ethical questions that are involved. And you mentioned that Poshmark has an inherent social aspect, and we're seeing all of the social networks and questioning around their uses of data and practices around data. So what are your considerations when it comes to data ethics and how are you navigating this really, really complex line of learning the most about your users and being helpful to them while at the same time respecting their uh, data privacy and other ethical issues? Fantastic question. Uh, so one thing I would say on the, the you know, data privacy and the data, data ethics, they have the overlap, but they are also different in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so on the data privacy side, more often than not, actually most often, in my, I would say in my 20 years of uh, the data career, I have not found a lot of value in using the user's private information. So mm. why, why even have access to it and why use it? Because think of it, the, the amount of data on which we are sitting today, our users, when they spend 27 minutes in the platform, they are telling us a lot about what type of products they are interested in and what type of sellers will, will fit their styling needs. You just need to know that, what they are looking for. You don't need to know who that specific individual is beyond just, you need to be able to serve the recommendation back to that person. But you really need don't need to know the person's name and like lots of other things. There are some cases where you need that privacy information, especially when you're trying to take care of the fraud issues and you're trying to serve the customer or the community service team, of course, needs to know who they're responding to. But you know, there are different teams who have different use cases. And in the data team, we don't need that information because there's a lot of other information. So let's just stick to the information which is really valuable to create awesome data products to give our users a good experience. So that's on the data privacy side. On the data ethics side, it's 
It's a very broad topic. Uh, and I think we can have like a, a conversation just on that topic. But at the highest level, my philosophy generally has been, if you stick with the Poshmark's cultural values of focus on people and lead with love, you will be conscious of making the decisions and the choices which are in the best interest of the people. And, and a lot of ethics does come down to your own moral compass and what are the, the driving uh, guidelines under which you are working. And when your focus is on serving your community and doing the best by them and with all the good intentions, which is leading with love, and you're focused on their growth, you will inherently be making the right choices and making sure that you're only doing which is in the interest of serving the community and not taking the wrong decisions on the data. And how do you deal with the complexity that, that occurs with that as, as the company scales and becomes a publicly traded company? Or, or do you believe that it's still all about going back to those core principles, no matter what the size of the company is? I think it's uh, going back to the core principles of the, the core values of the company and also the, the team we are building. So at Poshmark, when we when we recruit the team and when we onboard people and and when we uh, when people become the part of the Poshmark, there's a lot of focus in making sure that those core values are really uh, believed in and people are living by those core values. And a lot of it happens, I think, by uh, in many ways leading by example. See, our teams will reflect who we are, and it starts at the top. And when Manish is so focused on the community, he brought the team who focus on those values. And then when I hired my team, I am focused on those values and understanding how people will, I wouldn't say the fit, but either they will fit or help us together evolve the culture to be culture to be better. So yeah, it's hard to say where we, what will happen when we are like 50,000 employees company, but I have seen going from the 35 people to uh, 600 plus per company today. And those core values are still intact with everyone right. because we talk about them. And it's not just something which is on the paper. We talk about them. We make decisions. When we make decisions, we talk about why we took that decision and why it was in the service of our community. And I think that's helping. And again, I also go back to just the human beings inherently wanting to do the good things. And mm -hmm. we are giving them the opportunity to do this and we are acknowledging all the great work they are doing. People are motivated to make the right choices. And that's why cultural organizational design is is ultimately not a woo-woo principle, right? Like I, I think you, you said it perfectly. The reason the company has been able to scale, persist with these principles is because they've been such an inherent part of the DNA. And so hopefully that continues as the company scales. On another note, uh, there are many emerging technologies that are being discussed, and sometimes those get implemented for the sake of innovation, whether that's blockchain or AI or whatever, whatever else it may be. But what are some of the emerging technologies that you're personally excited about, and what use cases do you see for them in your industry or in your company? Great question. So uh, I would say the, the first thing which I'm super excited about is the growing role of video in commerce. If you think of it, the video is uh, is something which actually brings the social, it, it basically doubles down on the idea of the social commerce because through the video, uh, you are really able to understand the person behind that who is selling that item and also really able to as much like uh, the touch and feel the product as you could. 
So I'm super excited. And video is still, it's in early stages, but it's it's making, uh, it's growing fast. I'm super excited about the role of video. And Poshmark launched the, our first video offering was the last year in April when we launched the Posh Stories, where users are creating these stories to talk about their product or, or themselves. And we are, we are seeing an amazing engagement on that. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And it's mainly because you very well said that sometimes people just use the technology for the sake of it. That's not the case with us. We... Listing videos are, the videos are exciting because I think they make sense and they double down on the, the concept of social commerce. At the same time, there, uh, there is a lot of uh, work happening around lots of the AI advances which are focused on, essentially, I would say the matching of the buyers and the sellers and the, and the items, whether it's at the personal level or it's at the, the item level. And we at Poshmark are doing it too. So we have a machine learning algorithms running which... Uh, for example, we have a recommendation product which every day curates a set of items for our users and sends them. And in finding those items, we look at your all activity in the platform, like what kind of items you were engaging with and what kind of styles fit your uh, nature best. And uh, we use a lot of information to make those recommendations. But again, they, they fit with what we are trying to do. And uh, our feed is very personalized. We use the real-time data to be able to provide you an, an amazing uh, experience, exposing you to new closets or the new types of merchandise at the platform. I am excited about the both fronts, like the video specifically and the advances of uh, uh, machine learning and AI in making commerce a lot more engaging and fun. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the many reasons why I think Poshmark and its value prop is truly such an innovative company. I mean, just in today's conversation, we've we've touched on, on online buying, the rising trends around sustainability, and you know, shopping being inherently social. So, lots lots of things to come for both you and Poshmark. So, with that, before I let you go, I'd love to ask you one last innovation question, and that is, where do you see yourself and your industry? one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Great question. Um, I would say in the in the short term, we will just continue to see a lot of smaller upcoming companies will just continue to uh, push the boundaries for what the commerce uh, consumption and the shopping norms are supposed to be. And uh, the, the revolution which the retail industry has gone through in last one year uh, because of the, the external situation we faced, that will just continue. In the longer term, I am I am bullish on the the resale and the potential it creates. It will continue to thrive because it is a more sustainable shopping uh, option. It's a channel for people to uh, create more economic freedom and for shoppers to find unique products. I think the social commerce, the the new category which Poshmark pioneered, I think that will become the norm. Uh, all commerce will be social because, as I mentioned earlier, we human beings are inherently social and we have proven that it just works beautifully when you bring the social and commerce together and uh, you know as a data person i'm i believe in big big ways that the data and technology will continue to democratize fashion and and i spoke about it a bit earlier but both from the perspective of enabling the opportunities for building the fashion brands and their businesses at poshmark as well as allowing buyers to be able to find that perfect style individualized for one person. And we will continue to see the scaling in that fashion democratization. Um, at Poshmark, we have an amazing team. As you mentioned, DNA uh, innovation is in Poshmark's DNA. I mean, we started with a very innovative idea. 
we will just continue to be at the forefront to be the market leader in social commerce and globally our community is at the soul of like everything we do and we are focused on like lots of growth strategies to just continue to grow our community add new product lines we are driving innovation to increase engagement and the experience we are delivering we are expanding internationally because you know the the social commerce and the the human touch with the commerce is applicable to humans everywhere and just investing a lot in a lot of services and the tools to make our seller successful and as a data leader of the company i am super excited about the integral role of the data in driving all these initiatives today and for the future to come You're such an incredible visionary, Barka. I'm so lucky to have had the opportunity to ask you all the questions, and I'm even more proud to be a Poshmark community member myself. So looking forward to see where you and the company continue leading the way in this space. Thank you so much, Zoe. It was, I, I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.